0: She said she too young, don't no want no man So she gon' call her friends, but that's a plan I just saw the sushi from
1: Japan Now you just wanna kick it, Jackie Chan Drop top, how we rollin' down, no, no, don't call it South Beach yeah. Look like Kelly rolling, this might be my destiny yeah. She want me to eat it, I guess then it's on me I you Know I got the sauce like a recipe just wanna do it for the grand you know? She just want this money in my hand I know you. I'ma give it to her when she dance, 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 dance. She gon' catch her Uber out the Calabasas She said
0: she too young, do want no man So she gon' call her friends, now that's a plan I just saw the sushi from Japan Now y'all just wanna kick it, Jackie Chan she said she young,
2: no one, no man. This is the Chiron podcast number 24 for the month of July. This is also our quarterly 3D report podcast. This is Ryan Caldwell. Today I'm joined by my colleagues, Grant Saris, Brian Cho, and Scott Sullivan. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Hello. Howdy. Hello. Hello. For our listeners, that was a little uh, Post Malone for summer with a little Jackie Chan. Um, we were kind of thinking about uh, earlier um, what to do for podcast music, and again, given my affinity for Jackie Chan the actor and our relative love of Hong Kong equities, we thought it would be appropriate to uh, kick off this midsummer podcast with a little Jackie Chan from Post Malone. So that's what that was, guys.
3: I'm glad you explained it because it's not exactly my genre.
2: (laughs) And by the way, if our listeners could have seen the look on Grant's face for our intro music, it's definitely, definitely not Stranglehold from Ted Nugent. Um, So I thought what we would do um, for this episode of the podcast was review our second quarter 2018 3D report for our listeners and maybe add some color that they can't pull out of the writing. Um, And so, guys, just to set the stage for everybody, for those of our listeners that don't know what this is, so every quarter we do a review of Brian's quantitative work, the Chiron 3D report, where we go through the Chiron domain dispersion and ultimately the dispute work um, and talk about global markets from the context of the quantitative work. So um, this is a weirdly really appropriate time to do it just given what happened in the second quarter and even going back to the first quarter um, from a characteristic standpoint. So guys, what I thought I would do um, is maybe set the stage for our listeners as to kind of what the readings are, um, what we're getting out of developed markets, what we're getting out of emerging markets, and then kind of flip it around and open it up for discussion amongst um, the four of us, but really the three of you, because the beauty of now having another PM is I get to like MC this thing and, and DJ, as opposed to like having to talk much. Um, so I'll kind of whip it back around to you guys to maybe add some color to the baseline, but maybe I'll start, which is just, so if we take a look at our 3d report, I think kind of what we tried to emphasize, and again, this is a bit of a cheat sheet for those of you that don't want to read. Um, What we tried to kind of lay out for you is what are the choices ahead of you um, to make money and maybe more importantly, not lose money going forward, but making money going forward. And I thought there were a couple of things that jumped out at us. And and we talk about this in the piece, but I think a couple of big topics that we've been thinking about. One, how long can tech lead? It's been pretty healthy um, leadership now since the beginning of 2017 and then off and on really since 2014. Um how weak will emerging markets get? That's one I really want to dive into because I think we have some opinions there. Um will we have a crisis driven by the Fed and trade wars? That's obviously become topical because the Fed's obviously in a tightening cycle nobody else is globally for the most part. Um and the market is now starting to question the Fed with a flattening yield curve almost every quarter and that's something we've been talking about for a while. And then I think kind of the last topic um, that's up for debate is this, how bad will earnings decelerate in 20, back half 2019, 2020? Um, 2018 numbers are fairly baked in the cake. Um, They're good. Um, We know they're good. And I think the market's trying to get its arms around, what do we think about um, 2019 back half and 2020? So that was sort of kind of the setup. You know, I think a couple of things just from a high level that we talk about in the piece. I think first, just maybe back to why growth has outperformed so consistently. And again, I think to maybe demystify our work for a minute and maybe just talk at a high level. So if you kind of think about what the market's thinking about, it's thinking about growth rates. It's thinking about when do they peak and then how much do they fall once they peak? And- that's economic growth rates, that's earnings growth rates, that's rate of margin expansion. It's actually a whole lot of things at this point in the cycle. And so kind of deconstructing that for a second, I think the market is clearly worried about 2019 and 2020 growth. And it. I can say that with relative with relative certainty because of what's been outperforming. So when you go to kind of high growers, whether it's you know, whether it's some of the the big growing U.S. stocks or, you know, some of the other things outside the U.S. that have good growth rates, um, those have pretty much plowed through for the last five quarters, Um, and they've been leadership. And this was another quarter, again, and we point this out in the piece, where in developed markets, growth was clearly leadership relative to value. Um, We talked on last month's podcast with Scott about staples, which was a little bit kind of, I guess you know, predictive because we actually had a really good month in June for defensives. And again, that coincides with a flattening yield curve. So again, when I try to tie all this together, markets worried about growth rates, therefore it's grabbing for things that grow. It is worried about forward economic growth, therefore yield curve flattening. So that's just another way of expressing forward rates of inflation will be lower than current rates of inflation. All those things sort of tie together in a nice, neat bow. Um, and so growth has been leadership. Um, when we talk about our work, and we'll talk about this more when we get into dispersion, we clearly see that. Now, the kind of side note to this is that the market is also saying or concerned about this continual kind of tightening of, the, of, of interest rates on the short end by the Fed, and again, one of the things we point out in our written work is just what's happened with financial conditions. Because I think as opposed to looking at interest rates, looking at financial conditions is a much better way to look at system tightness and looseness. And again, definitely in the U.S. when you look at what's happened in the last, you know, call it since um, you know, late December, as the dollar started to appreciate, financial conditions have tightened really pretty succinctly. And again, the the offshoot of that has been we've seen capital fly out of emerging markets. And that actually always happens when U.S. financial conditions tighten, global financial conditions tighten because the dollar is a reserve currency of the world. So as it appreciates, it's going to suck capital out of other markets. And that's exactly what happened in the month of June. And so the setup is, is the Fed tightening us off a cliff? And we'll get into that. But the market seems to think that the Fed is way more neutral than the Fed's language. And we know that based on financial conditions, the dollar, and the flattening yield curve. The market's making a statement there. Um, so that's sort of the high-level setup. Now, the other thing, obviously, guys, that's front and center, and we talked about this a bit last month, Scott and Brian, which is kind of trade war. That's the other thing that's tightened, financial conditions. So if you think about kind of tax cut, we've had, you know, we had this tax cut. It looks like earnings growth is going to be about 20% in 2018. Again, if you look at the percentage of that, that's coming in top line versus kind of, you know, uh, below the line things from the tax cut, it's about one third, two thirds, the top line's accelerating. So that's helping. But we have this big, obviously tax cut that's worked its way into the numbers, and so, again, when we kind of look at it, when we kind of look at that, um, you go, "Well, wow, earnings growth is really good, but the market hasn't really gone up on it." And most of the reason the market, again, if you look at the AC or the S and P five hundred, hasn't gone up is because the multiples have come down. And so, whatever you gained from the tax cut, you've effectively given back through multiple compression. Um, and again, whether that proves to be right is kind of the next hard choice, right? And I think the hard choice is do numbers hold together or do they roll over? Because if they roll over, then obviously that is the end of the cycle or something that's going to feel like the end of the cycle. Um, and the question is, are tariffs leading us down that road? And look, I think you know our opinion at Chiron has been this is something to worry about because so much of the global story has been driven by tech and um, industrials and the outsourcing of their supply chain has really led to high margins, which has really meant contribution margins from those two sectors to s and 500 earnings have been really good for a long time. And Scott can talk about industrials, Grant can talk about tech, but both have been big beneficiaries of globalization. And so the market has weirdly kind of penalized industrials because it's a global sector, but hasn't really penalized tech yet. And so that's maybe something to kind of pay attention to and watch. And then it's definitely penalized emerging markets. It's definitely said this is the root of the problem if this goes pear-shaped. And so those are kind of the big high-level kind of topics the market's been talking about. Um, You know, we try to make a point here of not trying to spend a whole lot of time worrying about where consensus is and what Wall Street's saying. Um, But again, I think the last one is probably the topic that you know, keeps me the most up at night, which is if we have this escalating trade war, it ends up being really bad for everybody, um, not just emerging markets. But we'll swing back to that. Um, so kind of leading into what the domain, so what the, the 3D report talked about. So again, the big three sections, domain. So in developed markets, basically the reading we saw at the end of the quarter was mostly growth, although not as severe as it's been. And I think that's an interesting point to make because we saw very strong growth leading at the beginning of the year, and we've kind of seen some other sectors kind of pop their heads up and participate as of late. On the cyclical side, energy has been better. On the defensive side, kind of staples, utilities have been better. The yield enhancers, the REITs, those have been better. So as of late, we've got a couple of other things that have contributed and that's maybe making the readings a little less severe. Although if we go around the globe, the U.S., again, being the big piece of the ACWI, that probably had, you know, is as much of a step back as we've seen. And again, it went from, I would almost argue, kind of borderline full growth into something that's kind of just growth now. So that in our work, that's a big step back. Um, Japan is looking a little bit more neutral. And again, we've talked about Japan a bit, but that's starting to become interesting. Um, Europe, you know, again, still really growthy. Um, And we can talk about dispersion when we get there. But you know, it's it's a little bit wider. Um, UK definitely neutral. And again, a lot of that has to do with Brexit and the volatility of the pound and the market trying to kind of understand the UK economy and what that can look like going forward. And again, the composition of the UK equity market is interesting because you have a big weighting and representation for material stocks, which actually have way more to do with Chinese demand than it has anything to do with the UK, but they happen to be located there. So that's an important point to make. Um, And then then finally, when we look at emerging markets, again, the interesting thing in emerging markets is they were kind of cheap to enter the quarter and they got a whole lot cheaper. Um, and so in our work, they are kind of sitting in the kind of lower bowels of um, deep value to value. Um, and, and again, that's of the big bricks, if you want to go. Brazil is probably the growth, growthiest. Russia's in deep value. India's in deep value. China's in value. So of the kind of big brick countries, it's a pretty value-driven outcome. And it obviously got really extreme toward the end of the quarter. Um, and that's probably that's probably something we we'll touch on. And then finally, again, when we look at our dispute basket, again, it was an interesting quarter for dispute. and I think the only thing I would kind of t- I would kind of point out is there's a little bit less um, um, unweighting, if you will, of sectors in the dispute ba- in our dispute work, um, which just means no one sector is really jumping off the page at you as being poor, and that hasn't been the case. I mean we've had various sectors that have been moving in and out of the basket. Over the last couple of years, but we don't have a big kind of sector expression there at the moment, which is indicative, obviously, of, uh, of the environment. And then I think the other thing, uh, the other thing I want to touch on, guys, is just in Brian, this will probably take some of your explanation, but maybe Grant, you can clean it up fundamentally is just that we've had this really big outperformance of things in the best decile of price reaction and things in the worst decile of price reaction and everything else in the middle did poorly. So we had this really extreme weird outcome where actually the worst looking price momentum picked up in the quarter as did the best-looking price momentum, which wouldn't have surprised us with growth outperforming. But you also had some things outperformed that I think a lot of people weren't expecting. That's another maybe way to talk about that. So maybe, guys, first, if we want to launch into developed markets domain, um, maybe, Grant, I'll start with you. I mean, anything that kind of jumped out at you um, that you want to add to kind of the work and how you're reading it fundamentally or what it's telling you fundamentally?
3: Well, I think, you know, you pointed out, and we'll talk about the U.S., I guess, but it's indicative of most of the other developed markets except for Europe, which is that, you know, our domain ratings pulled back from a growth standpoint. So I, I think that gives you, a, again, a hard choice, which is what you titled the 3D report, which is, is that just kind of a pause in momentum as a factor and wanting to continue to own growth names, and we just had a bit of a a pause there because of some of the shorter-term factors? Or does that mean, you know, we should start changing how we look at stocks? Should we be more value-sensitive? Should we look at different sectors than we've been looking at? And I think, you know, that's that's a tough call, and I think, you know, I'd probably answer a little bit of both, I, I guess, I think fundamentally, we all believe that the economy and the fundamentals are good and that there's not really been anything that's changed. Rhetoric aside, I don't think anybody really thinks that picture has changed. And I would point to the small cap market as an indicator of that. I think if people really thought the fundamental um, outlook had changed, you wouldn't have small caps holding up. If people Once people really start to believe that we're at the end of the cycle, small caps aren't going to perform into a recession. So, you know, maybe that's stating the obvious that people aren't pricing in a recession yet, but given, even though we've had all this rhetoric, I don't think, you know, the idea that we're moving through the cycle and that we're, late, we're getting later cycle, I don't think any of that's changed, which then makes me think that, you know, gross stocks and those characteristics, momentum, quality are still going to be kind of the main backdrop of how you want to uh, analyze companies. I will say that given that the valuation, and I know you guys probably talked about this some on the last podcast, you know, given that maybe value looks, we're not quite as growthy as we were, and maybe you start thinking about GARP or value, I think it personally it makes more sense to look at defensive value than it does to look at, you know, early cycle cyclical value because I just feel like we're far enough along in the process that people now can they bounce of course I mean you know you've had all this noise around tariffs so you know auto stocks and some other things that are really early cycle have gotten cratered that doesn't mean they can't bounce but I think in terms of whether there'll be leadership going forward I think you know your next step is going to be more likely to be uh, health care staples those types of things. And I think, you know, we've said this ad nauseum, but the yield curve just keeps yep. painting that same picture. The yield curve just keeps telling you it's getting flatter and flatter. And I know that the maybe the the headline has been interest rates are going up. You have to own value. And I would completely disagree with that. Short-term interest rates are going up, but as long as the yield curve is flattening, you don't really want to own value, and any any you know cyclical value is going to be short lived because um, those earning streams, even if they're good, are going to be discounted with multiple contraction. Where so I do think we're getting at a point where you know people have wanted to own upside to cyclicality for the last two three years, kind of since the beginning of sixteen. They yep. wanted to find ways to own upside to global cyclicality. And I think we're at the point where, you know, that's probably changing a little bit. So I would say, you know, the portfolio going forward would be more growth and then value where you can find it, but not necessarily cyclical value. And again, that's a DM, that's a DM statement, not an EM statement. So that's, that would be my take on the work.
2: Yeah, I I wanted to, I wanted to just, Go back with you, Grant, on one point you just made, because I think it's a critical one, which is um the shape the shape of the yield curve and dollar flows matter dramatically now. Right. And I mean that's a typical later cycle phenomenon. And so it's not you know, it's not rare that this is happening. I'm always surprised how rare people, you know, start to react, oh my god, the yield curve's flattening. Like that doesn't make sense. Even the Fed, I mean, some of the commentary out of the Fed has been like to come up with excuses why the yield curve is flattening, right? It's never the reason that the market's just discounting forward growth. The Fed comes up with all these like magical fairies as to why the yield curve is flattening and why this time is different. Um, But the market sort of hasn't acted that different. I think it's an important point because to really get cyclical again, which for me would mean value smaller cap high yield like riskier things again you would almost need to see like a bull steepener and i don't know how you get that at this point in the cycle unless the long end really or i'm sorry the short end really starts to fall which just means the fed backs off the tightening cycle which i don't know how you do that without something really disruptive happening so i I think it's a critical point to make when you know i think when people talk about value you're right the street got really comfortable writing interest rates up, rotate to cyclical value. That didn't work at all for the first six months of this year. It didn't work at all last year. And, and again, I think if you want to position for value, then you have to have kind of a really positive view on a positively sho- s- sloped-shaped yield curve from here. And it's just not typical that you get this far into a flattener and it just steepens again from the long end selling off. So I think it's an important point to make when you talk about like what's next for value because even when we look at what worked in the quarter, energy worked and it's a cyclical. So when you kind of think about cyclical defensives, I'd put that on the more cyclical side of the ledger, but it's a really late cycle cyclical. So energy prices going up at the end of the cycle has sort of been a hallmark of late cycle since the late 90s, right? That's kind of been what happens. And so we're kind of seeing it again, so I take energy's outperformance of just another endorsement of of late cycle, not that like cheap versus expensive or cheap versus growth is is, is wrong. yeah, I would agree uh, and then and then maybe Scott kind of swinging over uh, just swinging over to you. I mean, the thing we've been talking about a lot um internally fundamentally. And then I want Brian to kind of talk about like kind of the contribution. But Scott, one of the things we've been talking about is numbers. And what I mean by that is, you know, Grant and has been emphasizing, you've been emphasizing, that, and I've obviously been doing backflips, which is to say that at this point, like the numbers matter. And not that they don't always matter, but given the hard choices, which again, topic of the podcast, like if the numbers hold together, and by numbers, I mean earnings estimates, globally but let's stick in the u.s for a minute because it's the big part of the acqui and i think it's the one where there's the most at least recent debate about what out numbers look like because the numbers have been so good so scott we've been having this discussion about like are the numbers going to hold you look at a lot of different companies so does grant in your kind of estimation so far are the numbers going to hold up and by hold up is like you know, it, we may not have the same growth rate in nineteen, but like, are they going to hold together? I think that's kind of the question you've got to get your arms around in anything you're buying now. Is are the numbers roughly correct? Yeah,
4: and, and I think it's important to kind of parse out um, different segments of of the economy and on whether or not the numbers are going to hold up, especially as you go into kind of the back half of nineteen. So certainly the leading indicators at this point in North America. Um, have been okay. I mean, orders from the industrial companies have been really good. Look at truck orders have been running over thirty-five or 40,000. Um, I think the issue lies in what level are those orders at on kind of an annual basis. So if you compare kind of North America truck or North America commercial construction versus, which are, you know, closer to a peak, mm-hmm. um, versus a mining or an oil and gas capex number, which are closer to 40% below peak or 20% or so below mid-cycle. I think that's a really important thing to think about when you're thinking about security selection at this point. So the level of where those, those markets are at are really important. And so you know, as you're kind of thinking about you know, where you want to invest... I think that the ability for the companies that are operating in markets that are, you know, 10, 20% below mid-cycle, 50% below peak are a lot greater um, to have that sort of earnings visibility into 19 and even into 20, because I I do think if you look across some of the sectors, the valuations are, for the most part, pretty similar, Mm -hmm. um, whether it be in cross industrials or even across some of the discretionary, you know, names or or within Staples. So I think looking at the categories or the end markets where the, the guys are operating are, is a very important kind of thing and what the levels are of, of those end markets. Um, so I think that that's really going to be what dictates whether or not you're able to kind of meet 19 and even into 20 numbers because some of the free cash flow yields, at least in the industrial space, are kind of running up in that high single-digit area. Um, which if you believe that the numbers are achievable, yep. those are slam dunk buys right yep. now. Yep. Uh, and I think, you know, there are end markets where you have a greater confidence that uh, those numbers are achievable given, um, you know, just the level of, of where things are at.
3: Achievable yep. and then somewhat sustainable, which is why you don't want them at near peak levels because you want them to be not only achievable, but then there might be a second act or at least a lengthy time where they can maintain at those levels as opposed to and that comes all yep. all back to this idea of you know going into early cycle cyclicals versus late cycle cyclicals the early cycle cycles have already you know been near really good levels doesn't mean they can't continue, continue. them but as they continue them the, the 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 cash flows that they generate are just going to be discounted because people are going to say well we're too close to the end yeah, exactly. I mean, if you're
4: playing off a peak market, you're just not going to get a multiple on that. No matter if you, it lasts another six months, it just doesn't matter. Right. But if you're playing off a market that's down fifty, then you know you feel like you can get three, maybe three more years of growth, and and you know the multiple can, can at least hang in there.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think you raise a really good point when you think about end market and capex cycle multiple and company and again from tech to discretionary to um, mining to industrials i mean it's a really good point and yeah it's when and this will bleed a little bit into the em discussion obviously because you look at a lot of those end markets so end markets for industrials or materials and as you've been pointing out to us scott like you look at the activity levels Now, I mean, the peak was massive, right? The peak was 08, and so it was the froth of activity and EM and capacity build out. But you look at where you are on some of the kind of spending numbers and where you're at in terms of quote cycle, there really hasn't been one. So it's really hard to get too worked up about peak earnings because you haven't had much in the way of kind of an up cycle. But then you look at other sectors, Grant, like you point out, like autos or construction or... or Even semiconductors. Uh, yes, yeah, semiconductors is a great one, right? That's right straight in front. They've been crushing numbers now for years, right? You can't argue that NAND and DRAM are at trough levels and that we haven't had a cycle in NAND and DRAM. We clearly have. So I, I, that's a really good point. So I think, I think Scott, you helped, you frame a really good argument. So... Just to kind of wrap that portion up for our listeners, I think the point is you got to do the fundamental work. And at at this point, again, our quantitative work gives us lots of signals and clues. But again, in developed markets where you're sitting at just average dispersion, and Scott, one of the things you said that just jumped off, and I'm going to jump a little bit into dispersion, is U.S. dispersion is just average. So what you just said is if you look cross-sector at some of these companies, they're all kind of valued the same. I would tell you that's almost what I would expect to see if I knew nothing and just looked at the quantitative work, which just is that average dispersion for the market. The market's kind of putting a similar multiple on a lot of different things, and so it's up to you to figure out where a number, where a number is sustainable and achievable, where a number is not sustainable and achievable, and you know, and probably having a little bit of a lean toward things that grow because they're going to more likely power through at this point in the cycle. Now, Brian, the one thing I kind of wanted to finish up with domain with on you um, before I kind of touch on, uh, just touch on EM for a second, which is when you look at the domain work quantitatively in the quarter, what if anything jumped out at you or surprised you? And maybe nothing surprised you, but and we haven't kind of talked about this, so maybe this is kind of an interesting form to vet it in. But when you look at your own work for domain and look at the quarter and you look at where it's come from and where it's been, Anything that surprised you?
5: Well, let me put it this way. I think nothing in a way is surprising, but what was notable uh, is that uh, you had a big outperformance of uh, negative price momentum stocks. So the best momentum stocks have outperformed here today, but then in the last three months, the gains by... The worst decile. So bottom decile of price trends have been big. So, you know, naturally the question then comes up it would be, okay, is this the end of price momentum stocks? Would be a question to ask, I believe. Because if you look at our domain work, one of the input is uh, looking at the market reaction and one of the things that we look at is how well the cheap stocks are doing also how we also look at how well the uh, momentum stocks are doing relative to the market and that gives us a clue to what's what's going to happen in the next period so this is a one of the natural input to the our domain work and when I saw that I think it wasn't a surprise because, you know, many times in the past, I, I looked at the history, there are times when the worst outperforms the market or even the best uh, in month or two months or even three months. But, you know, that's that's a natural occurrence. What happened before is why, in a way, we're surprised. Uh, what I mean by that is uh, investing public as a whole was caught somewhat, you know, surprised is that. Last year and up until uh, about three months ago, market was in such a benign period where price trends have done so well for so long, and I think that's why we were surprised. But you know, occurrence of perverse return really isn't. This happens time to time, every so often.
2: Yeah, and, and- so and Brian I wanted to I wanted to kind of flush that out cuz I think you make a good point. So for our listeners, when Brian talks about sort of the worst decile of price momentum outperforming with the best decile, it's another way of saying like things that have been blown up and awful and and awful as awful from a price chart perspective or performance perspective have re- outperformed in the quarter at the same time, the best looking things outperform. So that's why it's such weird bedfellows. So one of the things I was going to ask you, Brian, was the composition of that worst decile of price reaction. Was there anything about the characteristics of those companies that made them maybe more apt to outperform in this period? So like one of the things I was thinking about was Even back to our discussion last month with Scott, like if you would have looked at something like Staples or REITs, like you have this kind of instance where like in our work, their core model scores have been improving, but their dispute model scores were still pretty terrible, which is another way of saying the price momentum would have looked bad. And those outperformed. So that's what I was going to ask you. Was there anything from a characteristic perspective that maybe led to that outperformance of the worst decile performing right in line with the best decile that kind of made that happen?
5: Yeah. From my perspective, you know, what what was interesting about that group was you already pointed out a couple of groups, right? You had Staples and you had the Reeds they were completely, in a way, destroyed relative to the market, and we saw that. And while that was going on, what was beginning to look better is that when you look at staples, and even pharmaceuticals, for that matter, and biotechs, uh, what was interesting about them was they were destroyed enough such that valuations started to look compelling. That's one. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I saw was uh, if you look at... uh, the late cyclical stocks such as energy or you know those related fields they were also hurt badly and yet you know they started to respond to macro changes or macro factor being oil price in this case so well in in that case one you know one thing we can say is the stock prices were actually late compared to underlying commodities and some of that is happening to materials, not just the energy, but material stocks. Um, and I think for the most part, you know, when you, when you put it all together, what I thought was interesting is it was somewhat of a rotation, but it wasn't a complete rotation per se. Because if you look at the best decile uh, winners, so the price trend stock, uh, well, they're still continuing.
1: So yep. that hasn't
5: changed. Yep. What has changed is the stocks that's been destroyed or pummel, and they're beginning to show some positive signs, such that you can hold your nose and jump into that
2: deep water. Yeah, no, I I, I appreciate that. I think, um, just trying to maybe pull all the, pull everything that was said together. I mean, I think everything that we've talked about sort of rhymes when I kind of take a step back and listen to it. So, you again, Grant, you made the point of like it looks like somewhat of a continuation. But if you're going to lean on stuff that looks a little bit different, maybe you're leaning on things that are more cheap defensiveness than kind of cheap cyclical. That's, all, that's almost exactly what happened in June, right? The cheap defensiveness worked. And it's been the first time we've needed it to work or it needed to work in a while, partially due to the yield curve and volatility and trade wars and tariffs and all that stuff. But I think that fits sort of uh, that fits sort of succinctly scott your point is you know figure out your sectors figure out your companies and figure out the numbers um that's going to be just as indicative from here as kind of macro guessing which we don't do and i think leads to a lot of problems and then it, it, and then i think maybe the last thing i would touch on before we kind of roll over to dispersion which this is r- roughly related which is just emerging markets. And again, if you would look at our domain work in emerging markets, for the most part, as I indicated earlier, took a step back. They're mostly in deep value to value, with the exception of maybe LATAM. And we see this in dispersion, um, which is you know kind of starting in order. China is by far now the most dispersed market we look at. Well, another way of translating that, again, for our listeners is the cheap companies in China are statistically and significantly cheap relative to their own history. And again, when you see the work, and again, we print all this out in the 3D report, you'll see that effectively China's back to where it was at the end of 15, beginning of 16, when the market was worried about a currency crisis and a capital account flight from China. And again, it sort of looks as bad as it's looked post the cycle for cyclicals. Um, but again, obviously, there's others. I mean, we still have a lot of dispersion in EMEA. I mean, Turkey is kind of the gift that keeps giving when you're looking for emerging markets countries that continues to widen dispersion. Um, you know, Argentina, maybe that one stopped now with the IMF coming in and backstopping them. Um, and, and obviously, we've seen a little bit better performance at recently out of places like Brazil and Mexico and LADAM with the Mexican election getting, getting over that hump. Um, and Brazil looks like it's quieted down some. But those markets, again, when we talk about, and and this is a polar opposite, and this gets back to a little bit the piece we wrote when we talked about hard choices. So in DM, as Grant indicated, like you have to make some of these hard choices: sector, country, you know, defensiveness, cheapness, quality, value. In EM, the hard thing you've got to do is show up. And so, uh, you know, when we look at kind of valuations, it's completely different than developed markets. Things are really cheap but they don't get cheap without controversy. And so like what are the uh, you know the things that have driven controversy? Everybody's obviously acutely aware of the trade war headlines. That looks like it has been priced in China. It has not been priced by the way in the US, Europe, and Japan. So I, I we would caution our listeners that if we have a escalation in trade wars, it's likely to blow back now domestically as much as it is likely to be impactful to emerging markets and particularly China, although I wouldn't expect China to do well under that scenario. But I would say that relatively speaking, the pain has been um, absorbed and priced, at least according to our quantitative work. Um, and look, when the other thing I would say too is for Europe, Japan, emerging markets, dollar strength has led to a lot of capital outflows. So As the dollar has been weaker lately in June, part of, you know, so far to start the the third quarter, that's going to alleviate some of that pressure. And again, you know, Scott, one of the things you were talking about the other day in Japan was that, you know, a lot of companies have, at least a couple we were looking at, had, you know, forward guidance with the yen at 105. Well, the yen's 111. So profits are going to look substantially different. Um, Again, the euro was 122 to start the year. Now it's 115. Again, if you looked at things like the um, if you looked at things like the RMB or the offshore CNY CNH, you've seen a material depreciation back to kind of where we were at the beginning of the year and Chinese currency they've managed they've managed to manage that. Um, you know the Brazilian real is sold off. obviously the Turkish lira has been killed, the Argentinian peso has been killed. So we've seen that reflexive outflow out of EM. It's showing up all over our work. And so the hard choice is, again, I have no catalyst other than we think the numbers are broadly okay in the companies that we own in EM. And it's often the case when you have this much value available, you don't have a catalyst. It's very lonely. It's disruptive. You don't get this cheap without everybody, not everybody, but the vast majority of participants not liking it. And again, Wall Street almost in unison, the middle of June decided to go on a wide, a widespread downgrade streak of emerging markets as it was selling off, which is what Wall Street normally does. But now again, when we look at it from our domain work, it's really provocative. Now, the caveats to that are when deep value shows up, it takes time to realize. So again, just because it's cheap doesn't mean it's going to outperform tomorrow. Um, you've got to extend your time horizons, which I think we're trying to do and we would advise our listeners, look, if you're going to make do anything in emerging markets, extend your time horizon. Whatever, however long you think you need to hold it, you probably need to add six to 12 months because it takes time when things get this disrupted to work out. But it's provocative. Um, and then again, it, it, I think kind of the last thing I would say as I think about kind of EM dispersion is these markets have changed in the last you know, six, seven years. So if you look at the number of IPOs in Asia, again, a lot of these IPOs are more unicorn tech-laden. And again, if you look at the percentage of technology of China's outstanding market cap, and they're about 15% of global market cap. They're only 4% of the acqui, but it's 15% of global market cap. If you look at where the incremental companies have come from, they're more growth technology oriented companies. So I think tech's something like almost 31% of Chinese available market cap. That looks like the US. So again, you're going to have some natural level of dispersion when you're talking about a state-owned enterprise bank in Hong Kong and you're talking about a company like Tencent. Which again we own in the portfolio we own in the portfolio, but it's sort of the bellwether tech stock in Hong Kong. Those are wildly different companies. So again, Grant's done I think a really good job of pointing out that like, yes, there's all this dispersion, and now it's so provocatively wide you kinda can't argue it's wide, but there's probably an inherent level of dispersion that's going to be in the Chinese market because you have companies that are half owned by the government and then you have companies that look like U.S. tech companies. So you have just a wildly different characteristic and contribution set. So you got to be careful when you add all that together. All of that to say, again, in conclusion, if you look at our 3D report and you look at dispersion, what you're going to see in developed markets is not a lot. So it's pretty average to tight. If you go... U.S. is average, Canada's below average, UK below average, Europe is average, Japan's actually above average, and that's, you know, we highlighted that. And then EM, Latin America below average, China blown out wide, South Asia very wide, Taiwan, Korea wide, um, and EMEA wide. So again, for the most part, EM is, you know, playing its role as late cycle cyclical with cheap stocks. Um And debt, by the way. I mean, if you look at the yields in local currency debt in emerging markets, they now look like distressed. I mean, you've got double-digit yields or almost double-digit yields in some of these things. And again, that's something we would expect, actually, when dispersion blows out, is that credit actually gets more yield attractive because the market's worried about it. Um, And so we do see that as well. So, guys, I guess from a dispersion perspective... um, Anything that jumps out at a sector or country level um, to discuss, grant anything you're looking at, Scott, anything you're looking at
3: well, I'm focused mostly on de- developed markets, and as you said there's not a there's not a ton of sectors that are incredibly wide i mean and and if they are are they sectors that you really want to play at this point in the cycle so you know i I know we've had uh, some fairly a decent exposure in uh, large-cap pharma, which we continue to have. It's not a huge overweight. But I think, you know, what it takes for that to start working is for people not to necessarily want to own cyclicality anymore. And I think we saw that in June. We'll see, uh, you know, it probably won't be uh, you know straight up from here. But I think, you know, you do have a, a change in tenor that uh, people will start to, uh, you know, think about owning things that are cheap, that don't have incredible top-line growth and aren't linked to some great cyclical upside. You know, if they're priced appropriately and you think the cash flows are sustainable and they can do some acquisitions or good capital deployment with all the cash that they're generating, they can still be good stocks. They just aren't going to be good stocks if you're, Accelerating GDP and there's all sorts of other things that you can buy that are cheap. Yep. Once those things aren't aren't they're either not cheap anymore or you have the backdrop of you're not accelerating GDP and profits anymore, then owning something that's more stable and consistent that doesn't have unbelievable top line, but you have pretty good high confidence that the cash flows are going to be there, that becomes more attractive. So. You know, maybe that's another way of saying you know bond surrogates start to do yep, potentially better, better. Um, and I think that's where most of the dispersion is that you can find in the DM world is in in kind of bond surrogate type of things, whether it's telecom or or staples or utilities or healthcare, because you know people's mindset hasn't been that uh, you know. The economy is going to slow down. People's mindset is the economy is going to speed up. People's mindset hasn't been that you want to own the long bond that rates are <laughs> no. going, that, that rates are going down. People's mindset is that rates have been inappropriately priced and that the somehow the long end should be four or four and a half. Yep. Well, we're you know in the middle of a rate hike cycle and that's not happening. So doesn't mean it won't happen, but as of this point, that hasn't happened. And I don't think that's what the market is telling you. So I think, you know, the idea of finding some dispersion in some of these areas that may be more interest rate sensitive, that's where you're getting paid to take the bet that, you know, interest rates aren't on their way to four, four or and a half. So I think that's, you know, where incrementally we've been positioning some money within the portfolios, but we're still not, you know, we're not overweight that to be by any stretch. I mean, we're overweight, we're still overweight gross stocks, and I think, that's probably the first and foremost place um, that you would be in this point in the cycle.
2: And and Scott, one of the things I was thinking about as Grant was talking, and we we've been toying around with this, but we're starting to see management's act. So I wanted to bring it up: is you know one of the sectors that in developed markets, almost now broadly, but definitely in the U.S. that got has gotten dispersed is media and it's gotten dispersed because it's so wildly disrupted, there's real problems, right? You, The cheap stuff relative to the expensive stuff, and the expensive stuff being like the Netflixes and the Amazons, which don't always show up in the media gig sector but are clearly encroaching on um, the companies, have been wildly disruptive. Um, and so we've seen management start to act. And what I mean by that is, you've seen management start to buy stuff, right? And, again, I, we can argue whether that's the right thing to do or not a thing to do. And, Scott, you did a good job last month on the podcast of talking about, like, how the Staples guys got in trouble, right, when they were going through their acquisition spree. Now, they were doing it with really high multiples, which ultimately really hurt them in what they ended up doing. Media, like, even the best guys in media, they're, they don't have much of a multiple to speak of, but they're doing deals like, and this is what you see when sectors get disrupted, right? The guys try to build a protective moat through acquisitions, you know, give me that one and I'll bolt it into my thing and I'll make it better than it is as a standalone. We started to see some of that in media. Um, But that's a place where you've got really wide dispersion, but that's a place I think you've been a little bit more skeptical on the numbers, right? Like that's one where you kind of got to believe the takeouts coming because you don't have a lot of confidence in the numbers.
4: Yeah, I think I think the numbers there are just tough to feel like, you know, they're definitely going to make them as you go into 19, just given how difficult sort of the environment is for them. Now, there are just a few assets there. So <laughs> right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's kind of the positive. There's only a few guys that actually can get bought. Yep. Um, and you've seen a few deals there. And I'd also say you've seen a few deals in Staples. in the last, that's right. Even since last month when we did this. I mean, Canagra yep. just bought Pinnacle for – $8 billion. You had uh, Smuckers selling off an asset yep. um, today. So I think in some of these sectors that um, where things are getting, you know, at least relatively cheap, uh, you can kind of start to bottom fish a little bit, which is, is, you know, something we're thinking about doing and probably something we'll kind of continue to do. Um, and, and one of the areas where, where Brian's work really helps with that is is just, you know, isolating the different factors. And so Got capital deployment, you've got valuation, you've got market reaction, you've got earnings quality, and one of the areas that's that's really helpful, I think, in in trying to think about bottom fishing in those areas or, or thinking about adding exposure in those areas, is when the fundamentals aren't so great. At least you can kind of take a look at the valuation tab and see is this cheap, right? And, and you know, is it is it really actually cheap, or is it just relatively cheap versus you know the sector at that particular time? And so you know a lot of a lot of the the staples names and and some of the media names are showing up as you know the valuations come in the mm-hmm. in the lower you know one two or three kind of range and that that's sort of been an area where at least in the last month or so those stocks have tended to act better than you know the ones that are sevens and eights in the valuation range so um I think that you know with with some of those defensive sectors where actually you don't like the Staples Group, for instance, doesn't show a ton of dispersion. Right. Um, but when you kind of drill down into the individual factors, I think you can find, you know, some some pieces that, that make sense. And, and I think some of the management behavior um, to the point of buybacks, to the point of some MA, to the point of some divestitures, is sort of leading you to believe at least they're taking action. Um, and to your point, you know, when, when guys are, you know, Pinnacle Foods, for instance, got bought for, it actually got a take under. Yep. So Canagra not probably overpaying for that asset at least from the market's perspective, as opposed to what happened, you know, at the end of 15 and then to 16 when, you know, Bud was paying 30 times earnings for SAB. Um, yep. Or, you know, Kraft Heinz was paying that for what ended up being Kraft. So um, I think that, that the valuations and some of the management behavior is leading to believe that those sectors and shown by the charts are are starting to bottom out and giving you some opportunities to um, sort of add exposure.
2: No, I think that's a super good point that management, and obviously we're big believers in management behavior, management's tell you a lot by what they do. And, you know, you think about that contrast of, you know, in 14 and 15, you know, using big multiples to pay big multiples versus 2018, you know, relatively pedestrian multiples and taking a company under that tells you a lot about where the management team at Pinnacle where their thought process was, and again, and in in sort of where they felt they were in the cycle, and that's all. Re- like I said, it's really indicative, way more indicative than an economist telling you what's going on and trying to project the economy. Managements are are, are really good at kind of at the tails their behavior tells you a whole lot. So I think, you know, I think that's, that's good. And that's, that's ultimately something we've got to pay attention to. And then I think Brian, where I wanted to kind of end, um, with, at least with a three, with the 3d part was, I want to talk with you a little bit about dispute. Um, because again, I think this is one of the hallmarks of your work and it's really unique and differentiated. Um, and it doesn't work every day and so that's an important point to make as well and we don't count on it to work every day but could you maybe i think you know in the written 3d report we kind of give our 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 readers a contrast of kind of what it looked like in the prior version the last time we did a 3d report report versus what the current version looks like but again i think maybe just from a high level um you know, when you look at the characteristic set of what's kind of coming out of the work, um, and again, it's a little bit more equal weighted. And some of that is by our choice. Some of it isn't. But there's been times again, since, you know, since inception of Chiron and when we've published this, where you get this really big kind of sector bias in the work, right? And when we started, I believe it was healthcare and energy. It ultimately transitioned over to kind of staples and utilities as kind of things that the model really, really didn't like. And now when I kind of look at it, again, even taking some of our own kind of um, implementation bias out, it's relatively equal-weighted, which I thought was interesting in and of itself that it was equal-weighted. But again, is it, maybe for listeners, is there anything out of that work I don't want to say that surprised you, but they should be aware of and kind of reading the work and how you think about dispute. And again, you've lived with this for 20-plus years, so I'm always interested in kind of your insights into it.
5: Yeah, you know what's what's interesting about the latest dispute basket that we have is it's more, as you pointed out, balance across the different sectors. So uh, sector betting is somewhat muted this time around. And uh, what we're seeing is that, okay, it has some sector bets, but not that much. Having said that, uh, what I thought was coming, flowing through the model is, is the fact that it is capturing some of the controversies in the market. So... You, you know, one thing that we often touch on in our uh, work is that we talk to, we talk about dispersion. And along with the dispersion, we talk a lot about uh, controversy or arbitrage risk surrounding each sector and the industry. And then we aggregate that up. And then when you look at it, what, you know, what's notable at this point is that controversy is high in staples consumer discretionary energy telecom and some of the things that we just talked about actually and yeah that type of things as showing up in our uh, dispute basket but not to the same extent that we used to see in the previous version of the baskets that we have so I think in that sense the model is telling us that we need to have a more balanced look instead of punishing a particular sector or the industry, you now have to have a more broader perspective, and that's what we're capturing here.
2: And the one thing I did want to point out too from a sector perspective is that, again, we kind of look at the weighting. It's a little bit more equal weighting, but when you kind of take the basket and bounce it against an index, which we do in the reports, you can kind of see it's underweights and overweights relative to an index. The two that really kind of are still interesting, um, from an underexpression point of view, were not showing up are financials and tech. So obviously, financials didn't have a great second quarter. Yield curve flattened. Um, there was some consternation around stress tests, which you know may have ultimately worked themselves out. But two Q was not a good quarter for financials um, globally. And and again, in our work. It's still yet to really be showing that characteristic of like, this is a bad sector. So I always find that interesting is that it didn't, it it didn't really show up. Um, And again, that's with some bad looking price charts in the second quarter. And then the other one is obviously tech. And again, I've been watching dispute closer for tech than almost any other sector, because when we start to get a bunch of names populating in the dispute model for tech, it's going to be a really early warning sign that that sector is finally starting to buckle. And so when you look at it, at least in the second quarter, none of that's prevalent, right? Like when you look at kind of its weight relative to the, the benchmark we're using in the in the report, um, it's still pretty significantly underweighted as a characteristic. Now, it's more than it's been, but it's still a pretty big significant underweight. So those two sectors kind of, you know, I'd jump out as, again, continue to be underexpressed, and again, when I go maybe on the other side of the ledger, it would say, you know, from a long perspective, maybe that gives you more runway because they're not showing up from a kind of unsector neutral point of view in dispute. And then, you know, the one, I think the one relative to the benchmark that was kind of interesting to me, um, only because we've been doing more there is in the material space relative. Now, again, not a big overall weight in any index globally, but that's one where, again, the, the, the work... It picked up some of, I think, the kind of Chinese EM pull that materials are subject to, and the only reason I bring that up is, you know, it, 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 you know, kind of looking through the fundamentals, and you know, Scott's done some work on this too, as as kind of a, you know, interesting bedfellow to industrials, is that if you look at the materials companies, they're really clean from a balance sheet cash flow perspective because effectively they've had eight years of crushing capex and shutting down projects they've had activist investors in um so from a capacity and cash flow perspective they look less cyclical because they've had so much work to do to clean up all the excess capacity they built in the last bubble um but the market's still kind of treating them like china proxies even though the companies i would argue probably have a little bit different flavor to them than they did the last cycle only because of the activist investors and the cash flow so that's another place again that you know kind of jumped out at me a little bit in materials but it does it does just probably give you the indication that the market still views materials as largely an em story a non-dollar story and so if you have a strong dollar and weak em materials is not going to be a sector that does well regardless of the individual company characteristics um but again i think that showed up a little bit as well um, in the in the dispute work in 2q so i think look guys i think with that um you know we've thrown a lot of people what i would encourage our listeners to do is if you hear the podcast and again we tend to go about an hour when we talk about this go back and read the report again you can talk to your you can talk to your sales advisor or log in through the website and ultimately you can get it read the report and then the podcast will tend to make more sense as you kind of read the report. I would also say, you know, maybe to kind of finish up and, you know, maybe Grant or Brian, I'll kind of leave this with you. Like if there was one or two messages you were going to leave with listeners at this point, kind of what would it be? I mean, I tried to make the point of hard choices because owning growth and EM is, feels terrible because, Everybody own feel it feels like growth is crowded and it feels like EM is completely empty. So it's like the worst of both worlds. I'm either incredibly crowded with everybody else or I'm standing on an island by myself. I don't have kind of the happy medium. And that was sort of my point, but was there, is there anything you two would kind of leave our listeners in terms of like conclusionary statements for the quarter and going forward, you guys both have 25 plus years. You've been through a lot of cycles. Kind of what would be the parting shot?
3: Well, I, uh,
5: I think well it, let me, sorry. <laughs> no, go ahead. Grant,
3: go ahead. No, I, I think the point you made I'd hammer home, which is EM has gotten incredibly uh, cheap relative to everything else, and we don't know, you know, that could be correct. Um, the, the market, you know, all the rhetoric, trade war rhetoric, could turn into something, you know, really dire. I do, you know you won't be safe anywhere else if it really gets dire so at this point you you know the way I would look at it is you either bet EM here or you start to really change your risk profile because because if you don't think the em risk profile is attractive enough here then I think that you're fooling yourself to think that that that's, everything else that's is gonna fine. blow yeah. up and and the U.S. is going to just roll along and we're going to win the trade war. I mean, people have made the comment, no <laughs> one's going to win. Well, that's how it's going to happen is right. EM's going to blow up and our market's going to go too. And so far our market hasn't gone. And I think, you know, I think we would all say we kind of believe that that's the right call. And that's why we're taking our opportunity to bet it fairly big for us. And we're really over-positioned EM. Because if you think it's going to work out, that's where your return is going to be. So everything beyond that, I mean, we're, we're trying to figure out how to position our DM, you know, as best as we can. And I think, you know, gross stocks with some idea of getting near the end of the cycle and positioning yourself that way is obviously the way we think we should do it. But really at this point, you know, our portfolio is positioned for EM outperformance. And I think if you don't get the condition set that EM outperforms, well, you're going to have a lot of problems start to anyway. creep into everything else. Yeah. And probably the thing you're really going to want to own at that point is duration.
2: Yeah, no, no. and
3: um, we haven't made that position big yet, but we are much more um, neutral duration than we've been. So we have edged our way to being you know more neutral uh, fixed income than we than we had been uh, previously. So um, I think it's a you know we're at a very key juncture, and I don't think you can get you know a, a material Uh, downdraft an EM from here without it really starting to uh, cause repercussions everywhere else. So if you really aren't willing to bet that, I think you'd have to take your risk off the table. And, you know, we'd be willing to do that if that's what we started to see. But, you know, at this point, we're not positioned that way. So I think that's probably the most meaningful thing with the work and how we've positioned relative to that work.
5: Brian? Yeah, well, what I was – going to leave with uh, is uh, what we started out with which is the dispersion and domain what I thought was interesting at the end of this quarter was that the dispersions in EM has gotten wider while developed market uh, dispersions have gotten how should I describe it stall so it hasn't gotten wider it just kind of hang in there and it didn't really move so Another way to think about this is if the dispersion was uh, around the world, especially U.S. and TBR markets, if it got really wide, meaning that the growth had real big outperformance and cheapest stocks have gotten hammered some more, if that's what we have seen, then I would, I would caution you today and say, okay, we need to be maybe be careful here. That's not what we saw. In right. fact, it was a pause. And then what we saw as a whole domain was that we saw a step back in the developed markets. So instead of going full-blown growth, we kind of took the step back. In fact, we, I think, took like a one or two step back. So having said that, what's interesting about where we are is that this is when equity markets generally do well. Uh, equity markets tend to do very poorly or should I say it has more volatility in the full-blown growth market and ultimately that leads to negative returns. And so we t- took a step back from that place. So I think that tells us that we're still in the later cycle, but we're not quite at the end. And you know, the numbers that we see tells us that we need to take the risk. And where we are taking the risk is where we see the biggest... Pl- blow out into the valuation dispersion, which is
2: the yen. that's I think that's well said by the both of you. Um, and I, I think I would you know I, I would echo everything I obviously echo everything the two of you said and again, I, I think grant, just to wrap up, I think your point is the right one. If this is going to escalate and this is going to get worse, yeah, I, I no confidence that EM will do well, but neither will anything else, and that's the right point. I mean, it, when 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 we look at kind of systemic risks, I don't even think you could call this a black swan because it's self imposed. But if you blow up the margin construct of the world, which is what tariffing is doing, if you throw out all the econometric models and just look at it functionally as an investor, the reason this is way more meaningful than the economist can plug into an econometric model is because it's a margin story. And the margins of the things that we look at in developed markets particularly have been wild beneficiaries of outsourcing global supply chains. If we are going to get into some nasty big trade war, you're going to undermine the margins of the system. And so anything that undermines margins at the end of the cycle is a cycle enter. I don't care what it is. The last cycle it was housing and over capacity. It doesn't matter if the margins roll over at the end of the cycle, there's nothing to do. So I think you said it exactly right. You either are willing to bet it now that it's the world's not going to end or it's going to end. And the next step is to be much more defensive than our strategies currently positioned, or I think most on the street are probably positioned. Um, And the ramifications will be bigger and broader. Otherwise, you kind of got to step into the controversy. And so that, I mean, that's why we titled it Hard Choices, because this is kind of where we're at. We're not early. We might be late, and we might be really late. And how events go from here will dictate that. So look, guys. Yeah.
3: Well, our work usually says, Brian's work usually says how we talked about we measure controversy. Cheap plus controversy? You want. That's good. That's good. Expensive. Expensive plus controversy? You don't want. Not good. <laughs> that's right. So right now we have yep. more expensive, maybe not expensive, but more expensive, yep. less controversy in one spot. And we got Super real cheap, cheap, lots of controversy. controversy. Yep. And so you've got a choice to make. You can, you can, we have our feet on both pieces of land, but we're putting one down a lot harder in the cheap plus controversy yep. camp that the controversy is going to work itself out. If the controversy starts to bleed over to the expensive plus controversy, that's really not going to be a good place 100%. as well. So, um, you know, we, we, we're we willing to uh, embrace controversy when we think we're getting paid to do that. And I think, you know, there's some sectors where we're getting paid to do that. Certainly there's some countries where we're getting paid to do that.
2: Perfectly said. Well, gentlemen, I think with that we'll, we'll wrap up uh... – our 3D two sec- Q 3D podcast. I'll throw a little Post Malone back on for Grant, and uh, we'll we'll call it a week. We will be back in August. Um, we got to get some better music for. Yeah, it kids. will be back into Grant's playlist by August. I can assure you of that. So, <laughs> thank you all, and uh, we'll be back next month.
1: Might be my destiny yeah. She wants me to eat it I guess then it's on me I got You know I got the sauce Like a oh. recipe She just wanna do it For the grand She just want this money In my hand I know you. I'ma give it to her When she dance, dance, dance She gon' catch a Uber out the Calabasas
0: She said she too young no not want no man so she gon' call her friends, Now that's a plan I just saw the sushi from Japan Now y'all just wanna kick Jackie Chan She said she too young, to-